When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. On today's episode, we explore a world under the sea, there are warnings of a hotter world, and parrots get to grips with video calls. But first, it was on this day 1932, after flying for 17 hours from Newfoundland, Amelia Earhart lands near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, completing the first transatlantic solo flight by a woman. The first baby created from three genetic parents has been born here in the UK. It might sound like sci-fi, but the breakthroughs aimed at preventing children being born with incurable and potentially fatal mitochondrial disorders. The treatment uses tissues from the eggs of healthy female donors to create embryos free from harmful mutations. These embryos carry DNA from the biological parents plus a small amount of mitochondria from the donor's egg. Tom Clark, Sky Science and Technology Editor, explained it like this. Essentially what you're doing here is taking a fertilised egg from a mother who has is carrying mitochondria, so these little organs that are essentially the power packs, the batteries that live in all of our cells of our body, the, the power our biology, they're defective. Um, fortunately, they sit outside of the nucleus which contains all of the DNA that makes you and I like we are. So the way this technique works is you take the nucleus, that, which contains the mum and dad's jet information, what the baby will, will inherit, what GTF inherits, but leaves those the diseased mitochondria behind and you pop that into an empty egg from a donor that's had its nucleus removed, but it has those healthy mitochondria in it. So you pop that in there, that's the third parent bit. But actually, only 99 point, sorry, less 99.8 of the DNA in that egg is from mum and dad. It's only a tiny fraction of genetic material that's contained in those mitochondria that's passed on. Alongside the celebration of groundbreaking treatment, there's also the matter of ethics. This is Sarah Norcross, director of the Progress Educational Trust, an independent charity for people affected by infertility and genetic conditions. It's very important to not shy away from the tough ethical issues but to talk about them and so in the run-up to the law being changed in 2015 there was a lot of discussion there was public consultation there were lots of meetings lots of people put out lots of resources so the public could really engage with the issue what is important as well to think about is that this is a question of reproductive choice for people no one would force someone in Liz's situation to say you must go down this line this is something you've got to do that's not the answer for everybody. For some people, remaining child-free would be you know, something that they would rather do, 
adopting or using egg donation. So there are other options that are available to them as well as this one. The first child born using this technique was back in 2016, so future health is the key question on everyone's mind. Before, you know, we don't want to count our chickens and we hope everything is okay. Um, the, the whole programme at Newcastle was based around follow-up, careful follow-up of those babies. And of course, in the UK, we're in the fortunate position that we have a, a dedicated regulator that looks at fertility treatment and embryo research mm. who will be monitoring this. An American explorer has broken the world record for living underwater, and despite spending 74 days below the surface, he's not finishing his subaquatic lifestyle just yet. Joseph Detour is a diver and medical researcher. Right now, he's living at the Jules Undersea Hotel and is on a mission to stay there for a full 100 days. The idea here is to populate the world's oceans, to take care of the world's oceans by living in them and really treating them well. The record is a small bump and we love it and I really appreciate it. I'm honored to have it, but we still have more science to do. The science doesn't stop here. After so much time under the sea, there's one big noticeable absence in his life. So the thing that I miss most about being on the surface is literally the sun. The sun has been a major factor in my life. I usually go to the gym at five and then I come back out and I watch the sun rise. Alongside his record-breaking, Detour is studying how the human body responds to long-term exposure to extreme pressure, all while teaching his biomedical engineering class online. Nobody's truly looked at blood while it's been underwater with the decompression particles in it. So we're bringing a 2,000 times microscope down here. We're going to look at the blood. We're going to pull blood. I'm doing it uh, six times while I'm down here. Uh, you know, there's urine, there's saliva. You know, we're checking all kinds of things. Everything we need is on this planet. Everything we need is here. We have the yin, we have the yang. We have the disease, we have the cure. We just need to look where we've never looked before. So basically that has been my push for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Dechuri hopes this research will continue to aid future deep sea marine missions. Enjoy that sunrise. Still to come on the Sunday 7, all new images of the Titanic and Twitter has a new chief. We're going to head back underwater for just a second. Brand new images of the Titanic reveal unprecedented views of the shipwreck and may shed new light on just how the iconic liner sank more than a century ago. You know, apart from the massive iceberg. The first ever full-size digital scan of Titanic's wreckage has been developed using deep-sea mapping. The famous disaster killed more than 1,500 people on board, roughly 70% of the ship's passengers and crew, and currently rests 12,500 feet down on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Park Stevenson, an expert Titanic analyst, says this full-size digital scan will help piece together the ship's last events. We've seen Titanic for a century now, but we've seen it through interpretation by any number of people throughout the past century. Now we are finally getting to see Titanic without human interpretation derived directly from evidence and data which is what we really need in order to piece what I would call this crime scene together. Whenever you're trying to, to, uh, to evaluate a crime scene, every piece of evidence 
has to be left undisturbed and has to be in its exact place and its exact condition in order to figure out what happened. While the Titanic's been examined in detail since the wreck was discovered in 1985, the sheer size of it meant cameras had only ever been able to capture the decaying wreckage in snapshots. Small submersibles remotely controlled by a team on board a specialist ship spent more than 200 hours analysing the entirety of the wreck. The team took more than 700,000 pictures from every angle, creating an exact 3D reconstruction. Stevenson spoke with BBC Radio 4 about the new scans and host Nick Robinson asked the question we're all dying to know. No, not if Jack could have fitted onto that door. Rather, why exactly do we care whether the Titanic sank this way or that way? As an engineer, it's, it's unanswered questions. That, that defines my whole interest in Titanic. And also as a historian, I'm always wanting to get to the truth. And I've seen enough in my years of studying Titanic that I am suspicious of the narrative that we've become accustomed to over the past century. I, I basically question whether or not Titanic hit the iceberg along the side as we've all come to accept nowadays. Uh, I'm seeing a growing amount of evidence in recent years that suggests that Titanic actually grounded, ran over a submerged shelf of the iceberg, which was the first scenario proposed back in April 1912, but soon got buried under this you know, 300-foot gash torn out of the bottom, and then that turned into the, the bumping along the side that we, we've all seen today. So there is still much to learn from... The wreck, which is essentially the last surviving eyewitness to the disaster. She has stories to tell. a while since we last chatted about Twitter and there's been a lot happening. The beleaguered apps released its first version of encrypted DMs, Musk announced they're purging old accounts and freeing up desired usernames, but the biggest update is about Twitter's new chief. After weeks of speculation, it turns out the rumours were true. Elon Musk has chosen NBCU leader Linda Yaccarino as the next CEO. To find out more about the person steering the sinking ship that's Twitter, another Titanic gag there, we caught up with tech journalist Will Guyatt for the details. Hey, Will, good to have you back as ever. So what do we know about Linda? So Linda Yaccarino is quite a successful uh, leader of online and digital media companies from a kind of business and commercial perspective. Um, she's been hugely successful at NBC Universal in turning around that business, uh, making it make some money through its kind of digital media assets, uh, increasing its online revenues significantly. In terms of who is she, she was described in an interview the other day as MAGA through and through. So very pro-Trump, which seems to play into the world of Elon Musk and the kind of views that he'd want. So she seems the kind of person that Elon Musk would probably like to chat to at a party. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's hired her for this job, because I think they're not their their views of the world are not diametrically opposed. How does she fit into Elon's vision for Twitter? It's going to be interesting to see where the platform goes, because I think if there's going to be any kind of split now, because Elon Musk, despite hiring a new CEO, isn't going anywhere. He's still going to be interfering. He's still going to be making all the noise and he's probably going to be doing all of the late night tweets 
talking about what's going on on the platform. But what she's there for is to uh, get more commercial deals, uh, try and shore up the platform financially, while Elon Musk says he's going to go off and do kind of all of the tech stuff because he's still got this vision, and nobody else yet really knows what this is, that um, Twitter will become the core of X, the Does Everything app. And his idea is, like with apps you get in China, like WeChat, which started as a chat app, but now essentially you can do your shopping in it, you can have a bank account, you can order food to your home, you can do your social media, you can pretty much do everything in this one app. He's suggesting that he's going to do something similar and make uh, Twitter part of X, which is going to become the app that we're all apparently going to use. OK, well, once she takes over, what's she going to do? Is Elon still going to be calling the shots from the shadows? Well, it, it's very interesting in that Elon Musk certainly likes to be seen to be calling the shots, certainly likes to be the one making the news, trying to be bombastic. You know, the last year or so since he had announced the intention to buy it, I don't think there hasn't been a day that's gone past when Twitter hasn't been in the press and he fired the PR team as soon as he purchased the company. Uh, and that's as a measure of him knowing how to keep this thing in the press. But if you look at his other company, Tesla, or one of his other companies, Tesla, um, there's been some stories recently which have come out in the US which suggests that the chief financial officer at Tesla has been the one that's been making the company particularly successful over the last few years. I've been doing that very quietly behind the scenes, letting Musk take all of the credit. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. I don't think we're going to see massive clashes between the two of them. I think Elon's chosen uh, Linda Yaccarino specifically because he knows they won't fall out in the first five minutes. Do you think she's going to be able to correct course and save Twitter or is it just too late? Well, I think Elon Musk desperately hopes that Linda Yaccarino could return to Twitter to some form of greatness. But judging on its performance, the growing amount of outages from tech problems, uh, problems around safety on the platform, given the fact he's fired all of the staff that kept us safe. Um, I can't currently see there being some kind of massive resurgent return to form for Twitter. But maybe if he does get to launch X, the app that does everything, and Twitter's part of it, maybe it might help. Thanks, Will. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the largest cosmic explosion ever witnessed, and parrots get up to speed with Zoom calls. Right after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. What started as an unremarkable flicker in the night sky has turned into the largest cosmic explosion ever witnessed. The flare-up's more than ten times brighter than any known supernova and has lasted for more than three years, making it the most energetic explosion ever. Scientists at Southampton University say they came across it by accident and believe the explosion could have happened eight billion light-years away. This is Philip Wiseman, one of the uni's astrophysicists. So that means this has happened 
more than half the age of the universe ago. So when you know how far away it is and we can see how bright it looks to us, that tells you how bright it must be or must have been there at, at the real location. The explosion was first detected in California in 2020, but it didn't really stand out as anything unusual. When follow-up observations allowed its distance to be calculated, astronomers realised its rarity and importance. The fireball, 100 times the size of the entire solar system, is thought to have been caused by gas being sucked into a supermassive black hole. A giant cloud of material far bigger than a, a normal star that is being shredded by or partially shredded by the black hole and that shredding is sending some kind of shock through the rest of the cloud we don't have very good um, data on that part of the universe because it's just so far away that everything there is so faint but if there is a galaxy um, any larger than kind of our own milky way there then we would have seen it in our in our pre pre-existing images but but we don't see it so that's confusing and we're going to have to point bigger and more sensitive telescopes once the explosion fades away to try and understand what is what the environment is in that part of the universe According to the World Meteorological Organization, global temperatures are now more likely than not to breach 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next five years. Pateri Talis is the WMO Secretary General. There's a 66% chance that we would exceed 1.5 degrees during the coming, coming five years. And, uh, and there's 33% probability that we would see the whole coming five years exceeding exceeding that uh, threshold 1.5 degrees which is uh, of course not very likely to happen one thing boosting these chances is what's known as an el nino weather pattern which is expected pretty soon this is what happens when warmer waters in the pacific heat the atmosphere above and push up global temperatures leon hermansen is the lead author of the wmo report the ocean is a vast reservoir of heat so most of the extra heat that goes into the climate system um from the greenhouse, the greenhouse gases trapping heat goes into the ocean and sometimes, and this is what happens in an El Nino, um, the temperatures warm up in the east tropical Pacific and gives us a very warm temperatures that then are transmitted into the atmosphere and it generally warms up the globe. And according to that report, we have a 98% chance that one year in the next five will be the hottest ever recorded. Adam Scaife's a Met Office physicist and shared his thoughts with the BBC. That's never happened before in terms of a, a yearly average global temperature. So we are heading into unprecedented territory to temperatures we simply haven't experienced before and the impacts will be equally unprecedented. According to new research, parrots are meeting new pals via video. Researchers from Northeastern University, MIT and the University of Glasgow wanted to find out if parrots could use tech to communicate. You know what? 
They can, ironically not via Twitter, <laughs> but video calls on Facebook Messenger. The researchers recently discussed the findings in conversation with Seven News. Here's Elenia Herskage-Douglas. We are increasingly having more and more smart technology, if you want to call it this, in our homes. And these are sort of seeping into the animals that we share our home with lives. First, the parrots would request a call by ringing a bell. Then, their caretakers would present them with a tablet featuring pictures of available parrot friends. They'd then use their beaks to interact with the screen and then talk to another bird. Researchers observed some natural behaviours in these video encounters. Here's Jennifer Cunha from Northeastern University. What the other bird would do, they would do singing back and forth. So there were a lot of natural behaviours that we saw between the two birds, even though there was a screen between them. So it appeared that the parrots actually understood that a real bird was on the other end of the line. Many of them then made particular friends that they would repeatedly select for calls. Researchers say the study's just the next step towards creating ways for pets to communicate. Just wait till they learn how to deliver oo. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.